Hello and welcome to the Girls on Fire podcast. This week, we're speaking with MLC's new director of music, Dr. Andrew Sutherland. We talk about the journey that led him to MLC, what Andrew gets up to outside of work, and what it is that makes a musical education so important. A quick content warning for this episode, there is a story at the 17-minute mark that some listeners might find upsetting. To skip past that, feel free to skip forward to the 20-minute mark. Uh, Andrew, thank you very much for joining me this morning. Uh, are you able to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sam, it's great to be here. Um, great to be invited onto this uh, podcast. Uh, so yeah, I'm Dr. Sutherland. I've been here f- since uh, term four last year. Um, so still getting to know my way around MLC, um, but uh, I'm uh, the new director of music, um, still hoping to meet the rest of the MLC community. Um, and uh yeah, looking forward to seeing what this year is going to be like. Can I ask first off, what was the journey that led you to MLC and what drew you here specifically? So uh, for the last two years, I was in Hong Kong, actually, uh, teaching at one of the universities over there called Hong Kong Baptist University. And uh, I had a great time over there working with the the tertiary students and doing some research and uh, and all of those good things. Um, but of course, uh, COVID has just decimated Hong Kong. It's quite sad. And uh, um, it was definitely time to come home. Um, prior to that, I had been in London for about four years teaching at a school called the London an oratory school, um, uh, which has a, a really world-renowned choral program, and uh, and that was terrific. But uh, I finished my PhD while I was there, and the opportunity came up to teach at a university, and I really wanted to do that. Uh, but coming back to Perth, um, which is my hometown, it's uh, so nice to be home, and uh, uh, WA is such a great place to be. And uh, when I, when the MLC position came up, I was I was just really uh, couldn't believe um, how fortuitous that was, and uh, really really happy to be here. The obvious question, I guess, is why music? What drew you to music in the first place and wanting to teach or educate people around it? So when I was at school, I uh, was a boarder and I uh, came from the wheat belt and there was hardly any sort of cultural things going on at all. And uh, when I got to, to Wesley... Um, back in uh, my younger days, I uh, quickly discovered the the music program there, and it was just such a wonderful way to to meet people, to make friends, and to bond with people. And many of those those guys that I went to school with and just did music with for five or six years um, are still like really close friends of mine. And there's something about doing music uh, with with other people that that brings you together in in a way that only musicians often really understand um, because we rely on each other for in, without each other the music doesn't work um, and uh, and that sort of kind of gets into our psyche a little bit so yeah I think for me uh, music quickly gave me a sense of identity at school. And it was also my my place, my happy place. It was my place to escape. Uh, it was my safe place um, for those times when, you know, you weren't feeling quite so great. Um, you could sort of... Uh, uh, sink back into music and just lose yourself in in the the comfort that it brings you, and um, I really enjoyed those. But then, of course, there were the, was there were the other times when music was uh, euphoric and and really exciting and and wonderful, and going on tours and and doing recordings and and meeting these great musicians who'd come in to do masterclasses and things um, was just constantly keeping 
the the brain nourished and uh i just had such a, a great experience with that going on to do music at university was a was a bit of a no-brainer really amazing so a bit of an escape but also a, a very good form of social cohesion almost would you describe it as un, almost like another language that you would speak with other musicians yeah, I mean, there, there, it really is another language, actually. Um, and uh, often non-musicians just sort of listen in and think, what are you talking about um, when we when we get into our music mode? Um, but uh, I think, um, you know, I've done a lot of research in the last uh, few years about uh, music uh, students at, at schools and their their experiences with with um, particularly ensemble playing, and my question is always, you know, why is this important to you? What do you get out of this? Um, uh, what's driving you to kind of keep doing these ensembles? Because they're quite hard work. You have to get out of bed early. You have to commit, and and uh, there's a lot of work uh, to to learn these these pieces. And always the number one thing is um, it's not so much about the repertoire. It's not so much about the, the conductor. Sometimes it is a little bit, but it really is mostly about uh, the friendships and it's those, those connections with each other. Um, and, uh, and I think that's what makes music really, really special. Excellent. And I guess leading on from there, uh, is that one of the most important things about a good musical education? Or if not, what's what makes a musical education so important for young students? I think apart from that, that whole friendship paradigm, I think next is the ability to, that music has to make a young person feel confident about themselves. That's the number one thing. So uh, all of the music skills that we work on tirelessly at honing and just making incrementally better with sheer hard work, sweat and determination actually feed into a much bigger narrative about the development of a young person. And it's to do with that sense of confidence, uh, that sense of uh, personal identity and self-assurance that, well, if I can get up and, and, and do this, if I can play this piece of music and if I can, if I can master this, this skill, um, or, or, or do that composition or sing that piece of music, um, then I must be doing something right. Um, unlike um, other assessments that we do routinely at school, which we need to do um, that give us a, a number or a grade, um, there's something quite a lot deeper about uh, uh, pulling off a music performance. The, the sense of self-reassurance is much, much deeper process and I think lasts a lot longer. I don't really remember any of my test scores from school, but I do remember a lot of the pieces of music. I remember the venues that, and the place and the time and the, the sense of um, how I felt when I was there. And, uh, and those feelings just do not fade over time. So the girls at MLC, um, who hopefully this year will um, perform something somewhere to someone under some version of a circumstance, uh, will remember these memories. They they will hold on to them forever, and um, that's something is not, that is not lost on me. So obviously, these are tricky times at the moment in terms of live performance. What hopes do you have for MLC music students in the kind of experience they'll have over this year or the coming years? Well, at the moment, we're basically doing whatever we can, um, and uh, we are running our rehearsals uh, as were normally scheduled, but with just separate separated year groups. 
And I'm not going to lie, Sam, that's providing us with a lot of challenges. And, uh, and I think the girls are finding the rehearsals maybe not quite as um, uh, pressing as they might have done with, with everyone there. However, they do provide another challenge, which in a way is, is a bit of a benefit, um, although it won't feel like it right now, which is that we're rehearsing with such small numbers, sometimes, you know, six or seven people instead of 60 or 70 people. So it's a big reduction. However, the girls can really understand that their part matters under these circumstances. And uh, with reduced forces, every single part counts. Um, and when you make one little blemish, then everybody hears that. Um, and that's very uncomfortable right now. And I don't think anyone's enjoying that. However, there might actually be some long-term benefits for that, uh, just by honing our listening a little bit better, getting us to understand how we fit into an ensemble, um, and how every single, uh, uh, part, um, becomes part of the, part of the whole. And I think, I think the girls are understanding that gradually as we go through this process, having said that, I don't think any of us can wait to just get back together and, and to hear the whole ensemble come back together. Last question for the kind of more academic side of things. Uh, what's the best piece of advice you can give to a music student? I think it is to love what you do. And uh, when you have those moments in music where the challenge might seem a little too great or perhaps you're not feeling challenged enough or perhaps you've been practicing so much for an exam and you're just fed up. Um, all of those things are very natural and they will happen to all of us. Um, even as we get as old as me, um, the thing to do is to find that love of music once again. And that might be through just going through and finding a recording of something that just lights your fire again. Um, and just, relaxing, chilling out, finding out what it is about that music that makes you happy. Um, that, that happened to me a few years ago when I was sort of getting a little bit uh, tired and um, I rediscovered my old CD collection from, that I'd been collecting for many years and just kind of started going through and hearing, hearing things that I hadn't heard for years and thinking, I had forgotten about this. This put a big smile on my face. This means something to me. Um, music has that really, uh, weird thing where we just listen to one or two bars and then suddenly we get catapulted back in time to a particular place, uh, to a particular person or group of people. And, uh, yeah, I know for me that those, those triggers, those memory triggers, um, are really special. So that's what I would say to music students is to, is to find that, um, to find that love of music, if you've lost it, if you've got that love of music, to be quite honest, you probably don't need much advice. You're probably cracking ahead um, and uh, practicing and, and loving what you're doing. And to be honest, a lot of what I see around MLC is is just exactly that. Um, and uh, on a daily basis, I'm encountering uh, young girls who have clearly spent hours and hours and hours and hours already mastering their their instruments um, and clearly in love with what they're doing. And for those students, uh, my only piece of advice is just keep going and keep doing what you're doing. 
it came up a lot in some of the leaving speeches for last year's year 12s. Obviously, the pressures of exams and things like that are, are huge. So, uh, so many of the music students seem to benefit a huge amount from having something that they could escape to, that they could de-stress with, that was still, you know, still kind of fit into that academic pursuit, but just gave an escape. Um, you talked about music uh, triggering memories. Is there one that stands out for you, a piece of music that ties you to a certain place? There is actually, um, there are many. Uh, one in particular was um, I was in year 10 at school and we did a musical and uh, and every time uh, I hear music from that musical, um, I remember every single uh, friend of mine. Um, so the girls at Penrose um, and, and my friends at, at Wesley and uh, we did that together and um, yeah, I actually did a lecture on that musical um, recently um, for one of the universities, and uh, uh, I was t- I was talking about the composer Stephen Schwartz, and uh, oh, it only took that that first bar, and I was right back in that. Um, it was actually it was back in a, the the Penrose gym back then because they hadn't built their um, their fancy uh, music auditorium yet, um, so that was the the good old days. But um, there's, there's, to be honest, there's many, mem- many pieces of music that trigger memories for me, and so, some of them you f- you forget about, and then they they come onto the radio or you, you hear them at a concert, and uh, and the and the trigger happens, and it's it's really exciting. Andrew, that's that's all excellent. I think that gives a really good background on your kind of uh, educational philosophy. Um, more personally, what do you usually get up to outside of work? Um, Recently, I've been working on some some books uh, that I've been publishing, and uh, I uh, have uh, I published one last year, and then I've just recently, like this week, sent one off to the publisher in the states. Um, so that should be coming out hopefully in uh, in a couple of months, uh, and then I've got another book coming out uh, towards the end of the year. So to be quite honest with you, um, it's a little bit boring. Everyone says, oh, books, how exciting. Actually, it's not. It's very, very dull. And you find yourself sitting alone with your laptop um, by yourself for hours and hours and hours on end. Um, but uh, the joy of, of seeing it in print is 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 pretty amazing. And uh, however, I think once that third one's done, um, I might have a little break from writing for a little while. Um, but apart from that, I love, um, I love, uh, exercising and I, that's just so, so good for me, um, to help me clear my head. Um, so I love running and I also like cooking. Um, cooking is my kind of, um, way of combining kind of, uh, sort of creativity with functionality, um, because everyone likes to eat and needs to eat. And also cooking is great fun and uh, it's almost like music, making music itself, actually. Do you have a favorite uh, soundtrack for exercising or cooking too or a particular well, style? This, is, this might surprise you a little bit because um, obviously I have a great love of classical music and uh, that's what I was mainly trained in. Um, I also really, really love jazz and, and did quite a few years playing in jazz bands and jazz quartets and things. Um, however... My go-to music for exercising and cooking um, is actually um, like dance music, um, techno. I don't know why. I just um, love it. It just zones me out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you want something with a more consistent beat than jazz, I think, if you're yeah. trying, to, trying to stick to a tempo of running. Yeah. Andrew, what book or any other kind of piece of media would you recommend to anyone? 
Well, obviously, the number one uh, book, Sam, is going to be mine. Um, yeah, everyone. <laughs> Do you want to drop a couple of titles? Oh, so totally. Um, in fact, I think the library has has ordered uh, it already, so hopefully it'll arrive. We'll, I'll have check about that. Um, but it's called Children in Opera, and uh, that is all about, uh, strangely enough, the the history of sort of children in in opera and. Uh, how that worked and and the composers who wrote for them, why they wrote for them and uh, what sort of stuff children sing. When you think of opera, it's always about sort of um, older people singing very loudly and, um, you know, those kinds of things. But actually um, it, it's quite surprising, uh, the the history of, of, of children. And uh, uh, one little example is um, our good friend Mozart, um, who wrote uh, an opera when he was eleven um, for a uh, for a school and uh, in in Germany and the most of the cast were actually older than him um, and he's writing their their music and their arias and that sort of thing and that and that opera still exists um, so um, but there yeah there's some really really fascinating examples um, in fact I'll just tell you tell you one more which which was a which was a really profound moment for me writing this book, actually. Um, the opera is called Brunderbar, and uh, I know there's a lot of uh, concern about what's happening in the Ukraine at the moment, and uh, this was not far from there. And um, this was a Czech composer, and uh, he'd finished writing this opera specifically for children. There were no adults involved, and uh, they'd started rehearsals, and uh, it was all starting to to come together. And uh, then they were they found themselves um, ushered into a Jewish ghetto uh, at the beginning of the war, and um, and at that point they sort of assumed that the, the the opera was over; they'd never be able to do it until they looked and realised, well, actually, we're all here. The children are all here. The adults are all here. Let's do it here in the campsite. And on Sundays, they were allowed to to do kind of activities. And so they got permission to, um, to to rehearse and they started putting it together. And then they staged it in the ghetto, um, really trying circumstances. Um, and uh, what happened then was both hideous and, and sort of wonderful, which is that the Red Cross were snooping around to find out if these ghettos were humane or whether there was uh, nefarious things going on. And the, the, the officers, the Nazi officers, uh, decided that this opera would be the perfect way to fool them into thinking that everything was all okay. So the Red Cross came in, they filmed it. You can find this on YouTube. There's actually black and white footage of these kids singing this piece of music and, and rows and rows of children sitting there with their, their mouths open, enjoying the experience. And, um, <sighs> <laughs> oh, I've just come all verklempt. Um, yeah, the entire cast was um, ushered off to the gas chambers. And <laughs> <sighs> yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was an extraordinary story. And uh, one of the characters um, who played the role of the, the cat, um, she survived and um, she spent the rest of her life going to performances of Brunderbar. Um, particularly in Germany, but it, it is performed sort of throughout the world. And uh, she made a special point to to meet the cast afterwards and to um, go and give them all a hug and um, really, really meaningful. She, she actually only died recently, um, but uh, 
Yeah, so there we go. That's um, one of the stories in the book. Incredible. But not all of them are quite that um, heart-wrenching. Can I ask, in terms of the process of writing a book now, uh, so you have three under your belt at the moment or is one two and a half? Yeah, so one's published. The other one is just about to be published, so it's it's ready to go. It's, um, uh, the third one is finished and I'm just editing it at the moment and I'll send that off, uh, who knows, maybe in the next four months or so. Sure. Um, yep. What's the process like to go through the the entire kind of ideation process and then getting it completed and edited? How long does, does it take and uh, is there any advice you can give to anyone thinking of undertaking a similar challenge? Yeah, look, it, it's uh, it's... It depends on on the nature of the book and, and how much time you have. Actually, when I was in quarantine for two weeks, I got a huge amount of work done. It was uh, the time flew for me. Actually, it was um it was re- it just what I needed to get to get it finished. Uh, but look, my the the biggest thing is getting started. Um, and it's when you're sitting there with a blank page, and and for students studying essays, I think you'll probably identify with this. You sit there, and you're confronted with nothing. And to try and work out what that first word is, is often very difficult. And I think the reason is because we think that first word has to be the first word that is going to be the first word forever. But actually the trick is just to kind of throw ideas down and uh, don't worry about the fact that they'll probably change. Um, That's part of the process. Just get some ideas down. um, And as you do that, you'll realize that there's other things that you forgot to put in and then you'll add those later and and uh, and actually oh I probably could have said that a bit better and oh I've just come up with some other ideas and the and the book or the essay or the piece of writing will needs to be allowed to evolve naturally um some of the best thinking that you do about a book is when you're just sort of gone off for a walk or or you're doing other things you know buying groceries or all these mundane things in life um, and they, they occur to you, and then you come back and, and put them in, and 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 rechange, you know, change the whole structure of things, and and that's okay. Change is good. It's all part of the process. I think when you stick to your, well, that's the first sentence that I wrote, and that's how it has to be. That's when you kind of limit yourself, um, and uh, you don't allow yourself to kind of do your best writing. Andrew, thank you very much for joining me this morning. My pleasure, Sam. It's great to be here and uh, I look forward to uh, the next time we get a chance. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, feel free to like, share or leave a review and make sure to stay tuned for episodes to come. 